Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings here at the Naval Institute. Uh, today's show is brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. What makes good vision coverage? I knew it when I saw it. Things like fully covered vision care exams for all members, access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why I chose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Okay, a couple of great things happening here in Annapolis this week. Uh, so on Monday, uh, two days ago, we celebrated the 150th birthday of the U.S. Naval Institute. So really exciting event. We had fireworks, believe it or not. Uh, we had about 300 people here, uh, all three floors of the Jack C. Taylor Conference Center in, in full use. Uh, it was a great event. And if you missed it, I apologize for you missing it because you missed the party of the year, but it was a great, great event, uh, very befitting of our 150 years of service to the uh, to the sea services. Great, great event. Uh, okay, today uh, here uh, that is today is uh, Wednesday, the 11th of October, and this is the second of our three per semester uh, Warrior Wednesday Warfighter uh, event at the U.S. Naval Academy. So we had about uh, 250, 300 midshipmen primarily from the class of 2025. So uh, second class midshipmen who are starting to think about what they want to do after graduation. And today's topic was explosive ordnance disposal. And so my guest today uh, is Lieutenant Commander Mikey Galankowitz. Uh, she is class of 2013 at the U.S. Uh, Naval Academy. She's an explosive ordnance disposal officer and currently the EXO of EOD Expeditionary Support Group 2 based in Virginia Beach. Mikey, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So thanks for uh, sticking around after talking to all the mids. Uh, that was fun. They, they asked some great questions and there was a real enthusiasm and, and interest in the room. Uh, a lot of our, you know, I, in fact, I will tell you, you're the second EOD officer we've had on the show. Your first, uh, the first was your boss, actually. Um, uh, Admiral Andros uh, came on the show earlier this year. Uh, one of the things that he talked about was uh, the fact that that his command, Navy Expeditionary Combat Command, of which the EOD community is part of that command, uh, was involved heavily. In, in fact, led the recovery operation for the Chinese spy balloon uh, late last year. So that was pretty exciting. You mentioned to the midshipmen that you played a role in that. So we'll get to that in a couple minutes. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about EOD, um, what the explosive ordnance disposal community does in the Navy? Uh, and then, you know, how did you get into it and what kinds of things have you done in your career? So just start with a little bit about EOD uh, at the maybe 30,000 foot perspective. Yeah, so uh, the EOD or explosive ordnance disposal uh, community specific to the Navy um, supports is the DOD's only maritime EOD component. Um, so in addition to the conventional surface ordnance, unexploded ordnance threat, or ChemBio, radiological nuclear threat, uh, countering WMDs, countering, countering uh, improvised explosive devices. We also um, have a, a large mission area in expeditionary uh, mine countermeasures um, specific to underwater threats um, and underwater hazards and clearing and clearing those hazards um, to enable the fleet and, and other forces to be able to move freely. So um, as I spoke about a little bit in the brief, EOD um, is across all four services will go to the same uh, schooling down at Eglin Air Force Base at Naval School Explosive Ordnance Disposal 
But the key for Navy EOD specific is that after uh, after that basic EOD course is complete, uh, the Navy students will stay and do underwater ordnance division to apply what they learned in dive school or Naval Dive and Salvage Training Center um, to apply those techniques to underwater um, UXO or underwater hazard clearance and things like that. Got it. So you mentioned that uh, after graduating from the academy, you first went to dive school. So how long is that school? Yes. So um, so for officers, they'll do the they'll do the joint diving officer uh, program. Um, it's about six months and you'll get a kind of well-rounded base in scuba, surface supplied, recompression chamber operations, Mark 16 underwater breathing apparatus, and then meet up with the enlisted uh, EOD uh, diver class before you go over to EOD school. So you'll take that course with other uh, diving officers um, from other services as well. So that was about about six months. And is that uh, Panama City, Florida? Yes. Yeah, thank you. It's in uh, Panama City Beach at Naval Dive and Salvage Training Center. And then you just move uh, just down the road for EOD school to Eglin Air Force Base um, in Destin, Florida for uh, Naval School Explosive Ordnance Disposal, as I mentioned. Got it. Got it. And then after you were done with all your training, what was your first command? Where'd you go first? Yeah, so you have a couple uh, for Navy OD, we've got a couple advanced schools um, for static line, uh, uh, jump jump school at Fort Benning, expeditionary combat skills in Gulfport, Mississippi, and then EOD tactical training at training unit one in San Diego. And I stayed in San Diego uh, and went to EOD mobile unit one um, there. Um, my first, uh, when I first checked on board, I deployed as the future operations officer for our task group supporting combined joint task force Horn of Africa based out of Djibouti. Um, and then coming back was a platoon commander for an EOD mobility platoon at the time, sort of like the conventional jack of all trades um, EOD platoon. Um, and we supported Navy Central Command um, or, or Fifth Fleet for EOD response in that area. Um, while we were there, supported Special Operations Command, Central Command up in Syria um, for Army Special Forces up there and kind of split that time. So really interesting to see both the Navy Fifth Fleet EOD response hat and also um, support to Soxent um, and the the counter ISIS um, counter ID piece up in Syria at that time. Yeah, you, you told the midshipmen that you've you've been in a couple of uh, rough neighborhoods, so you spent some time mm -hmm. in country in Syria, uh, and you've also spent some time in country in Somalia. Uh, yes, so following uh, my tour at, at Mobile Unit One, I moved to uh, Virginia Beach out of Little Creek, um, where I was at EOD Mobile Unit Twelve. Was the platoon commander for uh, NAVSOF or Naval Special Operations Forces EOD platoon. Um, so we trained and deployed in support of an East Coast SEAL unit. Um, and I was deployed in support of uh, Joint Special Operations Task Force Somalia. Uh, yeah, lots, lots going on hunting uh, Al-Shabaab and uh, other groups there in, in Somalia, right? Uh, what, what, uh, what kinds of operations did you guys do in, uh, in Syria? Yeah, so Syria was really interesting in terms of um, training uh, SDF and, and partner forces at that time um, to go in and try to clear a lot of the IEDs that had been had been left when ISIS, when Raqqa um, had been liberated or other parts. We had we had forces uh, from our platoon distributed throughout um, the country. So other forces supporting different um, Army SF units were doing different specific missions, but our specifically was focused a lot on um, recovering uh, training partner forces and how to render safe 
enhancing their tactics, techniques, and procedures in those capabilities, and then building uh, our capability to do exploitation of the items that, that were recovered and ultimately dispose of them um, and expose of both the explosive remnants of war, conventional ordnance, and improvised explosive devices that were there. Got it. Uh, I'm going to ask you a, a tough question, maybe. Um, uh, scariest, scariest day on the job. What, what's what's the uh, the most hair raising thing that that you've had to do as an EOD officer? Um, I was I was really fortunate in uh, the time that I was there to have a, a strong unit that was supported. We were coming at a time when we could be deliberate in the actions that we took and the decisions that we made um, about when to go places at what time. Um, ultimately there's always those uh, kind of interesting events working with partner forces and working with folks on increasing TTPs where uh, their idea of cleared or complete on something is not necessarily the same as ours. So um, working through making sure that everything is actually safe before it's going to be around U.S. forces and making sure that our forces were safe moving throughout. I think that's just a lot of the challenging piece. Um, for the Syria one specifically. In other ones, it's just making sure uh, when we were, when our forces supported uh, the Somalian partner forces um, and, and training in that area, it was working to make sure that we could enable uh, support to their missions, countering Al-Shabaab Al and training. And then again, enabling the freedom of movement um, and support and safety of US forces that were going with them. So making sure we were bringing all the guys back um, and, and getting the guys from one point A to point B. Gotcha. Um, so one of the questions that came up during the, the brief to the midshipmen was uh, because it, EOD is the smallest, you mentioned it's the smallest of the, um, uh, the the Navy line communities with only about, I think you said 400 or so officers. So that's, uh, I was in, in intelligence, which is also one of the smallest communities, but at least twice that size. So um, and, and you talked a little bit about one of the, you know, some things that drew you to this career path. Uh, just, you know, recap that a little bit, because I thought your answer to that question was, uh, was terrific. Yeah. Um, so we're the smallest unrestricted line community, as I mentioned, and about 450, um, 470 officers. And um, so a piece for me that really drew me to the community when I was here, I arrived at the Naval Academy and didn't know anything about uh, Navy EOD and, and learned about it more and more as I was here. But what initially drew me to it was the ability to execute and lead in a small unit leadership position very shortly after uh, graduation and completing the training pipeline in a uh, very hands-on complex tactical mission, working in a small team that had to solve a really challenging problem. At the time when I was going to school and graduating, so much of that was focused on the counterterrorism or counter VEO, counter ID centric GWAT fight. Um, but it's really that similar mindset now as we shift um, into a, a peer to peer, near peer threat um, and different adversary. It's still the, the idea of taking a small unit, giving them a complex task and um, the ability to execute and solve that, that mission area and just work in a small unit leadership capacity. I knew it was going to be a challenge for me, which it has been at, at every tour, but it's also been incredibly rewarding. Got it. Um, so there's a couple of different um, communities or sub-communities within EOD. Uh, you talked about some of those with the midshipmen. Uh, describe them for, you know, for the audience here. You know, you've got the expeditionary mine countermeasures. There's diving and salvage. There's explosive ordnance. 
uh, just talk about some of those um, and, and where you've uh, fit your career in, in those micro communities, if you will. Right. So we're all um, a part of the EOD community. And the, the interesting thing that I think is that there is there are different areas or different mission areas, I should say, within um, that can all encompass an EOD officer or EOD technician's career. So you have mine countermeasures, you could meaning you could be on an expeditionary mine countermeasures company, which takes a mine countermeasures EOD platoon, pairs them with an unmanned systems platoon of other rates that maintain and operate the unmanned underwater vehicles. You could be on, as I was on a, a EOD platoon um, and do more of like conventional e under unexploded ordnance, protection of personnel and property, base response in certain areas, training with partner forces, different things like that. There's um, the chem bio, rad nuke um, assessment and response teams, CART teams that'll support. And then, as I mentioned, NAVSOF and support to Army and um, Navy Special Forces. Um, so there's a bunch of different kind of avenues that you can go into um, and all have experience. Again, I think one of the benefits of our community is it really looks at when you graduate from EOD school, you have a basic knowledge of core competencies and skills. And you should expect that when you get to your first mobile unit, you'll again start a training pipeline for uh, that specific, for not just the rest board or platoon that you're on, but um, to encompass the whole breadth of EOD mission areas underneath that. And then when you get into more phases, focusing on specifically where you're gonna be deployed um, and your specific mission area there. Um, but you can have that opportunity multiple times over a career to, to change and do a different mission area from one to the next. Um, so in my case, it was looking at, hey, going from a, a support to and a platoon supporting NSW to then going to being the operations officer at mobile diving and salvage unit two. I was never on a mobile diving and salvage company as the company commander. It's another, it's a unit that we have at the mobile diving and salvage units primarily responsible for salvage, um, port damage repair, expeditionary battle damage repair, um, and that capability. So really interesting challenge for me as the operations officer to learn from the tactical leaders, the divers, the LCP, the leading chief petty officers, company commanders, master divers on those units of how do I apply their technical expertise and communicate up to what leadership needs to know to accomplish a specific mission. Um, and that is, I think, emblematic of our community in terms of continuing to escalate the problem sets that you can get and the challenges that you can get um, and relying on that basis of core fundamentals and ability to solve problems um, to get to the other side of it. Gotcha. So uh, one of the things I picked up on one of your slides when you were uh, briefing the midshipmen was that your community, the EOD community, is not gender restricted. So uh, you're, you know, woman lieutenant commander, uh, mm -hmm. you know, halfway through a 20-year career, hopefully more than that. Um, how many women are in the community and how many women are, you know, coming in as new ensigns uh, a year? And, uh, you know, did you... Did, did that present any you know specific challenges for you in the community? Yeah, so I don't have um, the that's a that's a really great question. I don't have the exact numbers on the num on Not the exact, number of no. women in the the community. Yeah. It is Ballpark. a very small subset. Um, but in terms of one thing that I, I do benefit from and think is really incredible about our community is that while you know there's thirty maybe some women in the community. Um, it is an incredibly tight knit group of women. And I've been fortunate to have 
both male and female mentors in the community, but specifically the female mentors that I've had in the community have really done a lot to foster uh, a sense of community across all of the women in the community um, and work to kind of create networks where we can reach out. I would say that a lot of my challenges as an EOD officer are, uh, while they definitely have applied and there've been challenges being a woman and, and as there would be in any male dominated field or in the Navy or Marine Corps in general, um, they've also been challenges that I think a lot of my male counterparts have had in terms of like, how do you do small unit leadership? How do you lead a team where you were just going through school with the people that now you're on the same team with, or you show up and you're the platoon or company commander or an ops or an XO, and you don't have the same amount of uh, tactical time expertise as, you know, an LCPO or an LPO or other person in that field. And you still have to execute the mission and work to bring all of that expertise together. So I think a lot of my, uh, challenges have been seen by my male counterparts as well, but when there are, uh, ones that are specific, it's great to have that network of women to reach out to in the community. And I've learned so much from the women that are senior to me, but also, the women that are junior, that we have just such an incredible caliber of candidates coming into the community in general, um, both male and female. And I, I really learn a lot, have learned a lot from them. And it's been awesome to see that kind of continue. And it, it's helped me and I hope it's been helpful um, for them as well. So we're small, yeah, so but I think a tight knit group. Yeah. And you do some very cool stuff. So I, I, I from your slides, uh, you know, you got uh, dive schools, you're learning how to do uh, underwater operations, you're learning how to do uh, some land-based operations uh, with your joint counterparts, you're learning how to, you know, take a, take a part and, and render safe, uh, you know, explosive ordnance, uh, you're dealing with IEDs, you're, you're going to jump school. Uh, so, you know, you're, it's, it's not, it's different than Naval Special Warfare, but you do a lot of this, you know, very similar skills and you work very closely with them. It just seemed incredibly exciting to see some of the things that were on your slides. I was like, man, they do some cool stuff. Yeah, I think our community is really unique. And I would say it's it's very different. It's a different missionary. It's a different community. Um, I was really drawn to the to the EOD community and my time here at the academy was fortunate enough um, when I checked on board mobile unit one that uh, the, with the timing that the combat exclusion rule was lifted shortly after, which enabled me the opportunity to go and serve on on some of those teams. Um, and and really, it was that ability to do that um, after that rule was um, lifted, but also just the advocacy that I had from other mentors and leaders in the community that gave me the skills and, and taught me what I needed to know and gave me the opportunity to continue to learn. So both succeeding and failing as any other JO in our community or in any other community will do um, and learn throughout the process has been really rewarding. That's awesome. Uh, so I, I mentioned it at the start of the show that Admiral Andros uh, was here a few months ago talking about uh, being the, the, uh, the officer in charge of the recovery operation for the Chinese spy balloon wreckage. Uh, and you mentioned to the mids that that you were part of that operation. So we got the you know the the one star level. You know here's what we did. Uh, so tell us the lieutenant lieutenant commander level. You know what what you did. What what kinds of things did you do? But then also what your sailors did. Yeah. So really interesting opportunity. And I'm sure you know I, I don't have the same uh, 
didn't have the same lens uh, on it as as Admiral Andros from my seat in the operations office. Uh, or so I was the operations officer at Mobile Diving and Salvage Unit Two um, when we initially heard word of the tasking. Our command um, was certified to support uh, DISCA operations or maritime homeland defense operations, and so was tapped to be the lead C two. Uh, for that operation when it was going through. One, because of just the, we, we were in that capacity, but also because the mission was coming through and um, specifically what NECC, the phase that NECC was tasked with was the recovery and the salvage. So recovery primarily fell into, the search and recovery primarily fell into looking at employing expeditionary mine countermeasures area search platoon, dive teams, other assets, EOD heavy assets like that, EOD and, and UMS, as I mentioned, unmanned systems. And then the, the recovery and salvage is where the mobile diving and salvage company um, from Mudsu2 uh, worked with um, the assets they were on to both salvage and, and lift that um, the components once we had gotten them and transfer them at sea to the surface assets that we had there. So. That was kind of how our command came into the fold on the C2 piece for it down um, on the ground. We had forces distributed on an MSC vessel for the mobile diving and salvage company, Military Sea Lift Command. Uh, and then we also had forces that moved via land uh, to launch from shore down in South Carolina for the search and recovery as well. So that was initially one expeditionary mine countermeasures company. We later grew that to two with some additional uh, EOD shore-based detachment assets and dive teams and an area search platoon also from Mobile Diving and Salvage Unit 2. Um, so really interesting opportunity for me at the tactical level to see the, inter, uh, the integration of multiple missions within the EOD community in terms of an MDS company and an expeditionary mine countermeasures company uh, integrating and using kind of different skill sets. We already have that integration on an XMCM company through, as I mentioned, the unmanned systems platoon, employing UVs, using that data analysis to drive what assets and how the mine countermeasures EOD platoon uh, employs assets. And then from there, once they had identified it and the mobile diving and salvage company got on station using their expertise um to salvage that and look that and turn it over ultimately turning it over to the fbi as they were the lead agency so really interesting for me at the operations level to see how we just battle space management in terms of having surface subsurface we also brought in a, um, air assets to do um air mine countermeasures um, and support with with helos as well so looking at and then we had surface vessels in the area coast guard assets were maintaining security so just a huge amount of resources and just from the solely tactical perspective of making sure everyone can operate in the safe in a safe environment at the same time was a challenge that i hadn't seen before or hadn't uh hadn't gotten to work and was really challenging, but also rewarding to see that come into play. Um, and, and specifically with our community, I think one of the most valuable parts that I took about it, and I talked about it with the mids, is that when that call came out, the answer that I really felt like the community had was not who has to go or who is officially on the hook to respond to this. Everybody across our force really looked at how do we get the best assets down there as quickly as possible to solve this problem. 
And it's a problem that's a little bit outside, right, of what the mission area of those platoons and units, I would say, is. Um, but in line with the larger, I think, idea of the community is use the baseline knowledge that you have, use the skills that you have, use the tools that you have, and solve a complex problem. Um, and really awesome to see the community um, come together and really try to find the best solution and the best people to that problem. Um, the unit that I'm at right now is the EXO, Expeditionary Support Unit 2, played a huge role in the communications and the logistics and movement and mobility, maintaining all those assets and making sure we could keep everything going on what essentially became a 24-hour cycle when you try to look at using the unmanned underwater vehicles, understanding the time it will take you to do post-mission analysis on the data they can retrieve from the bottom, factoring that into how long it will take to get dive assets on station for both remotely operated vehicles or divers in the water. And then also the turnover time for those assets to surface um, to fleet assets that were in the area, um, nesting all of that with you have air assets overhead, Coast Guard assets maintaining security in a civilian, uh, you know, boat traffic area. Really, really interesting challenge to have at the pretty, I, I think, relatively junior level um, yeah. and was was really rewarding. Was that a, a week, 10 days, 14 days? How long a deployment was that for you to South Carolina from Virginia Beach? I, I think it ended up being about 10 days. So initially I uh, was planning to be embarked on uh, the, the Rosebud with the Mobile Diving and Salvage Company. We had planned to layer uh, and split our C2 across ground forces that were launching search assets and then what we thought would be a longer salvage problem on the Rosebud. Um, different assets or different factors shifted that to where I also went down to South Carolina with the rest of our C2 team and a large amount of the search and, and diving assets that were down there. So we had a large contingent of forces that the HM15, when they joined as well, came down to South Carolina as well. So the large amount of our forces were concentrated in South Carolina. We had a mobile diving and salvage company uh, embarked for the salvage as well. Okay. And then that was specific to us. And then also additional surface forces, as I mentioned, uh, in the area, other ships in the area and um, Coast Guard assets. I remember Admiral Andros uh, uh, mentioned that you know, the desire was to shoot it down, obviously not over populated area, which made it ideal to shoot it down over the sea. But where is it going to go feet wet was one of the problems. And then trying to make sure that it was shot down over the sea, but inside the 13 nautical mile territorial seas of the United States. So we had uh, the right to, you know, full rights to uh, to recover it. Uh, and then, you know, he said, uh, this is something we'd never seen before. We'd never had our hands on it. What's it going to do when it falls out of the sky, when it hits the surface? And then if it sinks, it, you know, I remember specifically, he said, you know, is it going to feather down? Is it going to drift off in one direction or another? Mm -hmm. Is it going to sink like a rock? You know, none of those things were known. And so, you know, to your point, you know, the, the unmanned uh, undersea vehicles that you mm -hmm. have, that your teams have, um, putting those in the water to find it, right, and also to identify what might be the, the Chinese spy balloon wreckage from other detritus on the bottom of the sea uh, before you're, instead of putting 
divers actually down there yeah. who have a limited amount of time that they can spend on the bottom and stuff like that. You don't want them trying to go find it when you've got unmanned assets that could find it. And then you can put the, the you know, the divers in the water. So uh, really, you know, interesting as you, back to your point about the need for people in your community to be able to solve complex problems on the fly. Right. And yeah. including, including things you've never seen before. I know. I think that's a huge example of, of right now how we'll continue to, to grow and how the place for our community in the Navy, I think it continues to be there because there will always be, we have a very specific mission area that we go to basic EOD school to train to. Um, and it really just builds like your skill sets. I look at it as building your skill sets and your ability to learn and the idea that you have to continue to learn throughout your time in the community. Um, and so I think it's it's a great example of apply what you learn in one mission area, say maybe like a heavy mine, mine countermeasures or a salvage background for the mobile diving and salvage company and apply it to this somewhat similar, but also very different scenario of we have an unknown asset that has fallen from tens of thousands of feet. We don't know the condition that it's going to be in, but when you get there, we need to have everything that you would want to raise it off of the bottom really different from traditional salvage of a, you know, vessel or a downed aircraft or something where we can look at like the schematics of that, do a, have time to do surveys and everything like that. So, I mean, really valuable experience for our team, but also I think highlighted at the tactical level, at the most junior units of action, the company command, like the company command leadership the for both the MDS company, the Expeditionary Mine Countermeasures Company, the platoons, and the shore-based detachments that were down there, a lot of ingenuity on their part of how do we do this? How do we do this efficiently? And what's the best way to accomplish this mission? Was It was really awesome to see, frankly, from their yeah, effort. fantastic. Well, we are uh, close to out of time. I would be remiss if I didn't do this because I mentioned to Admiral Andrews, it's been a while since we've had EOD officers or, or enlisted techs uh, writing in proceedings. And every year, the uh, April issue of proceedings is our expeditionary warfare issue. So it's kind of tailor made for your uh, organization. But really, almost any issue could be uh, something that uh, we fold in an EOD topic or a mine countermeasures topic or uh, any of the, you know, the skill sets that you mentioned today. Uh, so I, I threw out this invitation to you and to all in your community. We'd love to have you write for proceedings. We'd love to hear more about this very special, very niche community with some incredible capabilities that enable other parts of the Navy uh, to do what they do. So it's uh, it's important. We'd love to have that voice uh, in the pages of proceedings, uh, any issue, but especially in the uh, in the April issue. So when you go back to Virginia Beach and then also your uh, the, the JOs who are working for you that, uh, hey, I've got a writing assignment for you, right? We'd love to see it. <laughs> Yeah, we will. I'm, I'm sure we've got a bunch of folks working that. Okay. Well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, any any saved rounds for us? No, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. It's always great to talk to talk to midshipmen um, and kind of recap in, on the community and just appreciate the opportunity. Well, it's great to have you. Thanks for coming up and doing this today, both uh, talking to the midshipmen for the Warfighter event and then uh, being on the show. This has been uh, really terrific. And I, I hope uh, to hear from you again soon. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Proceedings Podcast brought to you by Blue Cross Blue Shield. What makes good vision coverage? I knew it when I saw it. Things like fully covered vision care exams for all members. 
access to over 125,000 independent providers and national retailers. That's why I chose Blue Cross Blue Shield FEP Vision. See what we can do for you at bcbsfepvision.com. Until next week, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.